the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance show. In this episode, I speak to Andrew Daniel, the author of Awaken to Your True Self. Andrew is an author, spiritual teacher, and director at the Center of Sinosomatic Development, a feeling-based therapy utilizing video feedback and movement to assess and resolve stuck somatic, psychological, and emotional patterns. In this episode, we explore a wide breadth of topics, including victim mentality, personal responsibility, and values of truth and freedom. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Andrew, here is my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? The first thing that comes up is not being a victim. The first thing is understanding that while things happen that we are out of uh, control of, that everything ultimately comes back to ourselves. And we are interdependent and we can rely on other people but having that self-reliance first, having the understanding that we are responsible for our life, and if it's meant to be, it's up to me, right? So that understanding that when we want to create in the world, that initiative comes from ourselves rather than the external world. So I agree 100%. I guess a lot of times when I ask that question, the first place that people's minds go to, especially when they're listening to this, is this kind of idea of, oh, it's all about yourself. So it's kind of this narcissistic pursuit. But that's not really what I'm saying. And that's not what you're saying. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're not working on yourself and you're not getting your own shit right, you're pretty much no help to anybody else. And of course, as you noted, you do want to have people around you that can help you. But at the end of the day, you still have to take those actions and you need to take the appropriate actions. So building off that, what a lot of people tend to do, here's my next question, is they go in search for answers, right? They want to figure this out. They want to figure out, well, how do I become more self-reliant? How do I show up in the world in the way that I want to show up? So one of the things that I saw that you had noted, which is, I think, is an interesting starting point. Love to get your take on this. You talk about the paradox of why seeking spiritual paths may lead to more suffering and not less. I'd, I'd love to hear your take on that. What I realized is that a lot of people who are seeking, especially around spirituality, 
most of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, they're coming from a place of wanting to run away from or avoid all of the things that make them human. And so they'll go into ideas of ascension or enlightenment or um, nirvana or heaven or all of these other uh, spiritual places accept the here and the now and the present moment in their body and what they're feeling and in their circumstances. And what I found is that in most, if not a high percentage of those instances, people end up suffering more because they're avoiding the very things that make them human. And I, I assert that our humanity is our divinity. The things that we aspire to be spiritually are not found outside of ourself. Uh, they're found here right now. And even if someone isn't, let's say, inherently spiritually oriented, religious, or anything like this, you can still think about this in the, the, the pinnacles of humanity in understanding that the things that we do in our life And the things that happen in our life have a reason to it, have a purpose to it. And when we deny that, we are getting rid of all the lessons. We're getting rid of the things that actually make us more self-reliant uh, by assuming that what we want and who we should be is uh, up and outside of ourselves. I guess even if the argument could be made that sometimes, you know, the things that happen have no reason, right. at least not that may be immediately obvious. I think there's still an important point here to be made that if you really want to make change, that you need to take ownership of wherever you find yourself and find the best ways for yourself to work through it, right? So kind of what you're saying, that you need to look within yourself for those answers. And I think... Unfortunately, too many people want to give their power over to something else, right? So that's kind of where the spiritual dimension comes in. And I guess what you're also saying there is that this whole aspect of what's typically referred to as spiritual bypassing, right? The idea that, in essence, people go into the spiritual traditions because what they really are doing is trying to avoid complex psychological issues that they having to contend with. Yeah. And uh, I'll make it clear that the work that I do is very spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person. It's just that when you use that spirituality to avoid being human and avoid the very things that we're you know, here to learn, whether that's from a higher perspective or just here as humans as part of the organism of Earth, that you know, there's problems. And so even if you don't find divine reason or purpose in anything, there's still a fundamental reason for things happening is because you get to learn from it. You get to change, you get to grow. All these circumstances and experiences we have are opportunities to evolve, uh, whether that's on a biological level uh, from evolution or that's a spiritual perspective. The way that I often kind of describe that and i guess it's quite hard sometimes right because you know depending on what we're talking about when we say trauma 
And of course, there are traumatic events in people's lives that are very difficult to overcome. But one thing that I've realized in my life is that I've traded trauma for wisdom. And that really is the kind of that opening of learning from what at the time just didn't seem to make any sense. Right. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to. Yeah, exactly. It's in the the work I do with my clients. That's one of the biggest principles is that this stuff happened. You know, we can't go in the past and change anything. And a lot of stuff is terrible and awful things that, that do happen. And now, years or decades later, how are you a better person from it? How do you grow? How do you evolve? How do you ensure that that trauma doesn't happen to your children or to the people around you? That you can learn those lessons and, as you said, turn it into wisdom so that you can make your life better. You can make the people's around you life better. You mentioned in the beginning there when we were talking, you said something about the importance of being present. So maybe just keeping with the theme of spirituality and typically how most most of the time it's presented. One of the big kind of ticket items for spirituality is about being in the present moment and how important that is. As somebody who studied this, and this was really a big part of my research because I studied mindfulness for my doctorate, one of the things that became very evident to me is that many people also use the present moment as another way to avoid psychological issues, right? You know, so kind of that that avoidance strategy. So that also happens. So I think being present is important, but being present with an intention is far more beneficial if we're talking about achieving success or overcoming things that we want to overcome. Well, one of the things, and this is a, a different take on what you said based off of my uh, clinical experience working with clients, is that what you're saying is true. It, it's just also the definitions are a little different. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by this is if they're using the present moment to bypass and avoid what's happening, they're not really in the present moment. So absolutely, I've seen a lot of people do mindfulness and meditation and these practices to avoid the things that are happening in their life. They're, but what I have what I call that is hiding out. So they're using these spiritual ideas of mindfulness to hide out from their responsibilities and from the real things happening in their life. And so they're pretend mindful, they're pretend present. And it's really uh, a, a way to hide out uh, from what's really happening. Because if you're truly present, that forces you to be in, as that's called the now, right? Right here, right now. But it also forces you to be in your body. It forces you to get out of your head, out of the monkey mind, out of the thinking, and into your body. The thing is, is that your body, when you're in it, you have to feel. And so, so many of us are avoiding feeling things that we don't want to feel, whether it's stress, fear, um, shame, judgment, you know, all of these kind of things. And when you're truly in that present moment and you're truly self-aware and truly mindful, all of that stuff comes up for you to face and to feel. And if you're not facing it and feeling it, you're hiding out in some sort of way. No, I like that. So I was just thinking that as you were saying about this idea of embodiment, I think a lot of people don't know this, is that, you know, 
it's not the only place that it comes from, but when we're talking about mindfulness, it has a very rich history connected to Buddhism. And if we talk about Siddhartha Gautama, which was, you know, the Buddha, in what was what he was supposedly to have said, right, in people that recorded, you know, his his sermons and the things that he noted, he was very, very clear that mindfulness was an embodied experience. And I coming back to this is another thing that I see that's been happening is two things. One, mindfulness as completely taken out of the spiritual spiritual tradition, right? So made it kind of, you know, more palatable for the Western approach. Sterilized. Which I think sterilized. Yeah. And I think in doing that, you, you, lose, a, you lose a ton. Yeah. But I also see people who are talking about mindfulness in a way that they give the impression that all it is is a cognitive exercise, right? It's about clearing the mind of my thoughts or, you know, not attaching or judging my thoughts. But at the end of the day, it's more actually than that. It's an embodied practice, which makes it an action-oriented experience. Yeah, it's it's really funny. And I, I say this in my book and I realized it really early on. I, I got into meditation when I was really young and then got out of it really quickly. <laughs> and what I realized is that so many people are trying to use the mind to quiet the mind. And so they're up in the, excuse me, they're up in their head, trying to use their head to get out of their head. It just doesn't work. And so you have to go into the body. You have to drop out of the head and be in the body. It, th there's no other way to do it. And so what happens is that a lot of the Western way of being is in the head. Everything is intellectual and uh, kind of this yang, logical parsing out of everything. But this practice doesn't come from that place. It comes from the feeling place. It, com it comes from not completely the opposite of that because in my view it's a, it's a full integration but it's certainly not going to happen by more trying to be in your head understanding how to quiet your mind by thinking more about quieting your mind so one of the one of the ways that i describe this to people when when i'm talking to them is in simple terms i look at it as talking different languages so we've got the cognitive brain, that's one language. And then we've got the embodied mind, if you want to call it that, that has its own language. And there are instances, for example, that no amount of telling yourself in your head to do something is going to get your body to fall in, in line. A good example of that would be if somebody is super stressed out, right? And they're completely stressed. And most people can relate to this when I say, okay, whenever you've been really stressed out and you've told yourself to calm down and relax, so you're saying that in your head, how well does that work for you? And most people straight away agree it doesn't work very well. And I go, well, the reason it's not working is because you're trying to talk to your body with a language it doesn't necessarily understand. 
right? So the way that I go further to describe that is, you know, just quickly is I talk about the autonomic nervous system. You've got the sympathetic, which is your fight and flight. You've got your parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest. And of course, when you're very stressed out, your fight and flight system is running hot. And if you tell it to calm down, it doesn't understand that language. And so you have to find a different way to talk to it. And one of those ways is through embodied practices. And that could be as simple as understanding how effective breathing is in engaging that rest and digest system and bringing it online so that you can come back to homeostasis, right? So there's, there's a good example of how you can be sitting there telling yourself all day long to do something and it's just not working because the, the, the communication systems are different. Yeah, I, li I like that. Yeah, it's two different languages. And then we wonder why it's not working. <laughs> You're speaking two different languages. Yeah. And I guess you know, coming back to what you said, and of course, you know, when we talk about the mind uh, in the way that I would maybe view it is that the mind to me is an in embodied process, right? Where if you come to most people and you say, what do you mean by mind? They'll point to their head. <laughs> You know, so basically that's where you think mind is, but actually mind is everything. It's all of you. And then it's mind that gets extended. So I'm not sure what your view is on that, but it goes beyond your body, right? Is how you connect to everything around you. Yeah. Well, that, that brings us into some, some even more fun conversation in the uh, cinesomatic work that I do. You, what we're doing is a feeling based process. So when I'm giving feedback to clients or we have a group of people doing movement exercises, I'm not in my head analyzing them, having a checklist saying, oh, well, your body language means this. What I'm actually doing is feeling that interconnected field, essentially, and through that symbolic data, being able to reflect back the myths, the archetypes, and the stories that are there and they're there available for all of us to see. But when we're in our head analyzing it, we can't see it. And so it's actually from that mind place you're talking about in the body that extends outwards. And you actually get to see how people are uh, subconsciously communicating all of this stuff to each other. It's really fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess in just how you describe that, I would say that that's part of spirit, at least for me, you know, we talk about that, that connection because there's, you know, as somebody who also is a nature therapist, that's one of the practices, right? Is that deep connection to nature and realizing that you are part of, yeah. you know, this collective source, you're not just this individual in of itself, right? Everything is connected. That pharmacy, so, right? Yeah, now, exactly. Now you're it. This yeah, nature, yes. You're you're it. <laughs> exactly. So talk to me about coming kind of full circle about victimhood and your perspective on a lot of people not wanting to take charge of what's going on. And maybe they don't move into that spiritual realm, but this time around, what they might do is they might have this kind of victimhood mentality where that in of itself is just another way of avoiding what needs to be done, right? It, it's, it's avoiding the, the shadows and that is always going to be a bad thing. Yeah, because when you avoid something, you don't have access to it. And if you're avoiding it, it's running you. And so if you're not aware that these things 
uh, are things you're avoiding. That's, a victim doesn't realize they're avoiding responsibility. But what they're really doing is avoiding responsibility. They're avoiding feeling blame and guilt and shame and disempowered and hopeless and helpless, uh, anger. All of these things, not necessarily at once, in different scenarios or mm -hmm. different things, uh, but they are avoiding feeling this stuff. And so they project and lash outwards. And sometimes you even have inward uh, lashing out, inward blame. And I talk about in my book that self-blame is not self-responsibility. So blaming ourselves isn't really taking ownership. You're still avoiding the accountability and responsibility of it. And so when we're avoiding all of this stuff, it means that it's directing our life. Because if something is uh, here at the left and you don't want to go there, well, you're going to go in the opposite direction. So you're going to go in the right. Well, that literally tells you it's directing your life. And so if you eventually stop that and you stop avoiding it, you go into it, you penetrate it, you take responsibility for it, well, now you're not avoiding anything and you get to choose 360 degrees where you want to go in your life. And so it creates uh, incredible freedom and choice. Victims don't feel like they have choice. They feel disempowered. But once you are able to see and have the self-awareness, you're mindful enough to be aware that, oh, I'm avoiding feeling this stuff. I'm not taking responsibility. And then you do it. You go from having something in the shadows that's directing your life that you're a victim to that as well. And you go from there into being someone who takes responsibility. And now they have freedom. Absolute freedom requires absolute responsibility. And so the more freedom you want to have in your life, take on more responsibility. Uh, even if it doesn't make sense, even if you don't see why or how, just the simple fact of taking more responsibility uh, for yourself, for others, for the situation, for what's happened, the more freedom and choice you'll have in your life. So exploring that a little bit further, Andrew, what would you say are the major obstacles stopping people from doing that, from confronting and going into their shadows? I'm guessing part of that, and you can you can say it better than I can, but definitely some of it will be things like ego, for sure. Um, what about narcissism? Yeah, how do they play into this? Oh, <laughs> those are whole those are whole other can of worms. Yeah, uh, narcissism is a, is a whole topic that that I address, and it's very different than a lot of what we're taught. For me, the, narciss the narcissism comes from a love of not the self. Narcissists or people doing these narcissistic behaviors are not in love with themselves. They're in love with an image. And it's this egoic narcissistic image, a mask, a persona that people invest into, that people think that if they look better, are more lovable, acceptable, and uh, have more attention and approval and success, fame, notoriety, whatever it is. If that comes from the image, then it's narcissistic because it's all about a love of the self-image. Whereas these people don't actually feel like who they inherently are is enough, is lovable. And so instead of surrendering and letting themselves be vulnerable and penetrable. They 
construct an image that is a, in certain terms, a false idol that they begin putting all this energy into in self-help persona development. And they're building up this image. And then they're interfacing with other people out in the world with this image. And so pulling that back to the victim mentality, if that narcissistic image is supposed to be powerful, better, actualized, whatever terms that person thinks they're supposed to be, well, it's going to be in conflict with the things that you have to do in order to heal, like being vulnerable, uh, facing the shadow, owning all of those things. Hmm. I like that. I guess one of the things I was thinking about when you were saying that was that what people need to understand is that there are gradients to this narcissistic kind of attitude. I think, unfortunately, we've kind of used that word and we've kind of almost placed it in such a way that when we talk about narcissism, we're thinking about these extreme cases of narcissistic personality disorder. But you can... Everybody, for that matter, can be presenting presenting narcissistic traits as a way to avoid all the things we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And we get that from our parents, our family, environment. You know, a lot of times we don't realize this is just stuff that we figure out uh, how to survive, how to cope. You know, a lot of these things are coping mechanisms for mm. our needs not being met. How much do you think? the way that the modern world is set up, the way that we <laughs> live today has brought about the kind of situation that we see. Because I think you would agree, and this is definitely what the research is showing, that mental health, especially in the most modern parts of the world, so let's say the Western world, is at an all-time low. And what I typically find is that a lot of what's presented as self-help to help people through this are just more strategies and tactics to try to fit into the system, not realizing that actually it may just be the system that is the problem itself. Yeah, I think it's one of those chicken and the egg things where it's uh, we definitely have technology and people and systems that are exploiting human nature. Uh, just think of social media, you know, these dopamine hits, all of these algorithms that are smarter than all of us combined that know exactly the unconscious psychological, emotional buttons, even the horm hormonal buttons to keep us addicted. Uh, so I think that there is... And, and we want it. We like it. It's like, okay, here's here's this thing, and it is actually uh, in part creating a lot of your suffering. Well, we'll take it away so you don't suffer anymore. No, 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 I need it, right? And so that tells us we're addicted. And so we're a society that's uh, heavily addicted to avoidance. We're heavily addicted to this chemical dopamine rush and hit, all of these things. And what's happening is that we're becoming less and less connected. It's this, it's this really interesting irony that we're more connected than we've ever been. And yet, everywhere I go, I see people unable to connect and have intimacy with the person right in front of them. It is, it is terrifying. Now, listen, I... I 
wrote software. Uh, I had a technology company. I use a lot of technology in the work that I do. I am a huge fan and supporter of advanced technologies. Uh, it's just that there's some people running the show. There's a certain cultural zeitgeist um, that is is leaving us without the tools and the education and the morals and ethics uh, to have these things serve us rather than us be the slaves to them. Yeah, that's some really good points. I think, you know, just adding to that is that there is a paradigm. There's a definite paradigm where the world is seen to operate based on scarcity, you know, individuality, competition, greed, resistance, and fear. I mean, all of these is what I would refer to as unsustainable thinking and being. And that in itself is, the, is, is where the, the problems arise. I mean, I agree with you. Don't believe that per se that technology is the problem because it's about how it's used, right? But if you are creating technology, but it's driven from the paradigm that I just described, you know, scarcity, individuality, competition, greed, resistance, and fear, are we then surprised that the outcome is less than desirable? Yeah, there's more of that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is also why I think that many people that I speak to who have gone down the self-help rabbit hole of reading all the different self-help books don't tend to see a lot of positive gain from doing that. And so they read one book and then they're on to the next one and they just become self-help junkies because it's very, very difficult. Even if the information in the book is good, it's very difficult to find a way to show up in the world that I just described. Well, people are trying to show up in the world without having to show up. Yeah. And that's like, you know, social media or being on your phone. It's like you're out in the world, you're waiting in line. Rather than being in the world, you hide out in your phone. And so there's yeah, there's just a lot of things where people and and it and it just is self-perpetuating, right? It's it's a downward spiral. You have to just stop. And so one of the chapters in my book is called Stop Fixing and Start Living. And that's totally apropos to what we're talking about here is that we get in, not all of us, listen, I've been in the self-help personal development world for 15 years and it's it's been one of the best things of my life. However, at a point I realized when I had lists of negative emotions and limiting beliefs that I was trying to clear and cancel and delete, remove, whatever, while it was still helpful, I was realizing, oh my God, I'm adding more to this list faster than I'm taking off of it. This is never going to end. I'm going to be fixing, canceling, clearing, deleting, fixing for the rest of my life. When do I get to life? <laughs> when do I, I, I get to having, being fixed and happy? It's, it's nowhere to be found. And I think that, again, not all, uh, because it would be very hypocritical, but I think a, a large percentage of this industry is filled with people that aren't necessarily having people arrive at peace. They're, in order to keep the cogs spinning for whatever their ego is running, that it's just a little bit and it just keeps them 
trapped. And so people get stuck in the fixing cycle. Um, I think for, for that paradigm reason, I also think that a lot of the strategies come from another paradigm of the head. Everybody is um, focused on mindset and mindset is really important, but it's just intellect. It's more just in intellect set. Nobody is really talking about, not nobody, but very few people uh, percentage wise are really addressing the trauma that's found in the body, the stuck patterns that are found in the rest of your entire system rather than just one way you think about something. So there's multiple paradigms that I think um, need to be uh, not, uh, not necessarily overcame or got rid of, but evolved or transmuted in certain ways in order for people to really break through to the next step. Mm. I think also the problem is, and that kind of links into social media and, and all those things, is that many times a lot of these self-help gurus put themselves up as being perfect, as if they've got all their shit together. And that, you know, if you just follow my advice, you can just be perfect like me. And I'm reminded of this quote by Jason Pargin, where he says, and I think this, this is the best quote I've read in a long time, except all of your heroes are full of shit. Your heroes aren't gods. They're just regular people who probably got good at one thing by neglecting literally everything else. And I think that's that's really important, right? Is that I think it comes back to what you were talking about vulnerability. I think what we need is we need more genuine heroes, right? People who are actually saying, listen, you know, I don't have all the answers. Here are some things that work really well for me. I don't always get it right. I mean, people ask me that all the time. It's like, well, you you did a doctorate in mindfulness. So like you must be present 24-7 every single day. I said, no ways. You know, some days I'm getting it right. Some days I'm not. I got my own Freudian shit to deal with. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Um, here are some things that that I've learned that I think you can, you, you know, that maybe can help you. But I think we need more real and reality and less of these kind of, you know, gurus that are infallible and, uh, you know, supposedly have got all their, their, their shit together. Well, this is actually something that is really fun for me to talk about because we don't often get here in conversations about this uh, industry uh, guru kind of thing. And this ties in back to what I was talking about, narcissism. And so what's happening is that because of the, I think we can trace it back to the star system in Hollywood back in the early century where uh, rather than just people who are actors, we have celebrities, we have stars. And if you imagine that in the self-help guru uh, teacher kind of world, what we find is that they're marketing and sales strategies are based around image. It's saying, this is the image that I have. You don't have that. Would you like the image that I have? Now, they're not saying image. They're saying me, but it's actually a narcissistic image. It's not who they really are because guess what? You can't become somebody else you can adopt somebody's persona and image and wear a mask to be like them for your 
ego and approval or whatever. And so that's what they end up selling. And so very early on, I realized this was happening. And so my approach in telling people is that if you come to me for help and, and to work together, I'm not going to teach you how to be me. Uh, th this is not a, a an Andrew Daniel assembly line where people come in as them and they come out as me, where they come in broken and then they come out fixed. That's not at all how any of this works. This is about becoming more you than you've ever been. And you only get there by stopping the images, by stopping the external validation, by stopping the abandoning and betrayal of your true self. And that requires vulnerability. That requires taking risk. That requires tremendous courage to go out in the world, to go inside ourselves and discover who we really are. That requires us looking at all of our shadow material. It requires us making mistakes, getting messy, doing things wrong. And for many of us, that's stuff that we've been taught not to do. I agree. And I guess that can be sometimes a very hard selling point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it does not uh, sound nearly as sexy as look at my Rolls Royce and mansions and uh, you can be like me. And However, also the yeah. and also the formula, right? The formula yeah. is they understand it either they know this just because it's worked for them in the past, or they 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 know it because they know the research. But we also know that the human brain loves defined answers. Yeah. So if I can give you seven steps to achieving whatever you've decided you want to achieve, the brain goes, "Oh, seven steps, that's amazing." You know, that's why we have all of that genre, the seven habits of X, right? And there's so many of those. That's why they exist because the brain goes, oh, that's 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 great. All I have to do is follow seven steps. I want in. But, you know, the reality is even if we go back historically to the time that all of us and our ancestors were hunter-gatherers, there was never any of that, right? And so we've created this kind of false narrative and, uh, I totally agree with you and what you're saying and, and, and your work sounds amazing, but I guess that can be sometimes really hard to sell, right? Especially in this day and age. Yeah. Well, some of my sales copy is literally saying, you know, people come to this work expecting just more advanced of the same thing. But I start saying things like do it wrong. It's not about feeling good. Uh, you know, the spiritual path is failing you. I start saying these things that fly in the face of, you know, perhaps decades of what they've been learning. But that's why it works when you've been doing these other things for decades and you've reached plateau after plateau after plateau and are still suffering and still haven't realized peace. And the, the ego, the, the intellect uh, wants to strategize. And so there's, there's great strategies. There's certain things in life in the world that having seven steps makes total sense. Great. But when it comes to figuring out your true self and accessing that and healing, what I found is that the ego, as, as you perfectly said, wants to strategize. It wants to do this. And so people will come in and they'll say, oh, all right, so you're looking at somebody and then you're feeling this. All right. And then what they end up doing is they end up running tape and strategizing feeling. 
they they turn feeling into a strategy. It's like the people that that play music or go out to dance in order to self-improve. That's not the point. The point is to play music. The point is to dance. The point of dancing is to dance. And then when you turn it into a strategy for advancing your persona in the world, you strip out all of the beauty. You strip out all of the spirit from it. And that's when you get somebody who's achieved so much in life and yet they feel so empty. Yeah. So as we start coming to the end, Andrew, because it's it's been awesome, let's talk about your book. So tell me a little bit about your book and the, the title of your book is Awakening to Your True Self. Give me some insight. You've kind of hinted to it, but let's, yeah, let's explore yeah. it. Yeah. So there, there's a lot to this book. It's a, it's a pretty big book. It's uh, 432 pages, and it's, it's not uh, a quick read. This book is designed for people who have already done all the work, people who have done spirituality, self-help, personal development, all of these things, and yet, for some reason, they're still stuck. Something in their life still isn't working. And it could be their relationships, their career, their income, their health, their spiritual practice, whatever it is. And these were all lessons that I learned after doing eight years of all of that work. I did plant medicines, entheogens. I've done EFT, acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, Western psychology, uh, spiritual teachings, East and West, uh, philosophy of chiropractic, detoxing, cleansing, holistic this, uh, neuro-linguistic programming, hypnotherapy. I've done all of this stuff, and some of it was really helpful. It just got me to that point where I realized I was spending my whole life fixing and not living. I, I never realized peace. And so eventually I did. And that came after being homeless twice, after childhood trauma, after uh, poverty, after being made fun of, after wanting to be suicidal, and having a software company, after being published. I had all of these things, both incredible successes and incredible traumas and failures. And yet I still wasn't there. And I was dedicating my life to this. And so eventually I did break through. Eventually, it did happen. And so this book was designed, my intention for it was to be all of those lessons, all of those things that actually uh, moved the needle, that actually made the difference in my life. And so I put all of those in, my, in this book and it covers things uh, from the true self to ego, to narcissism, to victim mentality, to personal responsibility, to making choices, uh, all the way to things such as the spiritual path is failing you, um, the shadow work, uh, diving into the shadow and actually facing all of these things, and to embodiment. And as a whole, I essentially am saying that every reason you're stuck, any reason that you could be stuck, the answer to that is in this book, somehow, in some way. There, there's, in the hundreds of people I've worked with, in the decades of doing this, there is something in here 
that will help you get unstuck. Um, and so it might not be something you can see right away. It might take some time. It might take years to stop being a victim, to take responsibility, to look at the shadow. It's not necessarily an overnight fix, but we're not trying to fix anything. We're trying to get you to stop doing all of the things that keep you from the truth of who you really are. So it's it's almost an opposite approach of a lot of the stuff out there because I'm not giving strategies to fix yourself because the more fixing you do, the more it validates the lies you were broken to begin with. And so this process is all about stopping. It's about subtracting. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.